Turn those Bibles to Acts chapter 3. This morning we're going to look at the second sermon of Peter that Luke records for us here in the book of Acts. And it, of course, is another wonderful example of powerful, spirit-filled preaching as we see the Holy Spirit is certainly guiding, and I believe directing, every one of Peter's words. And we're going to see such a clear evidence of that wonderful gift of prophecy that we saw all throughout the last sermon. And we're going to learn at the beginning of the next chapter that 5,000 people were saved as a result of this one message. And yet I think that far more than just being a great example of some great preaching, I really think that this text has so much to offer to all of us here this morning, whether you're one of those people that's out there ministering to crowds of thousands, like Peter was, or whether we're just simply seeking to help that hurting person that the Lord has brought and placed right in front of us. Because I think that this message is such a clear example of the way that the Holy Spirit uses the Apostle Peter, not just to fix problems, but to really point people in the right direction, kind of down that pathway toward repentance and redemption and salvation. And so I'm calling this message, Peter points the people, I could have called it the Apostle Peter points the people, and yet I thought that might be a little bit hard. But I think as we, as we go through this, we're going to see that this passage is so rich, I think, in application, not just to us as we're out there trying to be a blessing and trying to minister to others, but I really think even more so personally, I think that this passage really reveals to us the heart of God and it reminds us of that glorious gospel in which we live and it refocuses our sights, if you will, right on Jesus where they need to be. So let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless and ask him to meet us here this morning. So Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, just for the privilege of being here, Lord. We thank you that you've provided this place where we can gather, Lord, and set aside this time for us to meet. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would meet here with us, Lord. We're, we come here expecting uh, an encounter with you, Lord. We expect you to work in a way, Lord, that's, um, that's nothing less than supernatural. And so, Lord, we pray you would do that through your word this morning. We pray that the teaching ministry of your spirit is manifest among us here today. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. So, what a remarkable text it was last time. We watched Peter and John. Remember, they were just on their way to a time of prayer there at the temple, and we saw that the Holy Spirit, he singled out that one lame man, and he did a mighty work in his life. And we saw how he used the gift of knowledge and the gift of faith as the Spirit enabled Peter and manifest those gifts of healings through him and we saw that it brought wholeness to the man's legs and it brought salvation to his soul. And we watched him standing and he was leaping and it said he was praising God. Because remember we said that Jesus had done so much more for that man than he could have ever imagined or hoped for. And then we saw that the people that were gathered there in the temple for this time of prayer saw this man. And they recognized him as that beggar who was always there by the beautiful gate. In verse 10, it said that they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So there are thousands of people there in the temple courts marveling at this man and this miracle that they had just witnessed. And then we pick up our story in verse 11. We read that here the people are starting kind of to point at Peter. It says in verse 11 that as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together toward them in the porch which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And I just think this is such a picture that Luke paints for us here. These multitudes are kind of rushing towards Peter and John and this poor lame man. It says that the guy's holding on tightly. Now, I don't think he was holding on because he needed their help to stand up. I think this guy's holding on because he's just afraid as thousands of people are coming toward him. Suddenly, he is the subject of their attention. 
right? They're, they're trying to find out what happened to him. He's standing there with the apostles in a place Luke says called Solomon's Porch. Now Solomon's Porch was a specific part on the east side of the temple complex. It was sort of like a long corridor which then opened up to a huge courtyard area. You maybe remember it's where John tells us that Jesus had ministered. It's where we're going to see in Acts chapter 5 that the early church actually gathered for worship. And so seeing all this, I think, and looking through the eyes of faith and not through eyes of fear, Peter doesn't see this multitude pressing in. You know, you know, he sees another opportunity. He sees this curious crowd, a chance to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. But first, he needs to get their focus where it belongs. And so it says in verse 12 that when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. He said, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Now you remember in the first sermon that Peter preached on Pentecost, remember he had to correct that accusation that all of those believers were drunk. Here, in the second sermon, he starts off having to correct the assumption that somehow he and John had healed this man by their own power. And this is a super important point, because it was at this point that I believe that Peter faced one of the most dangerous moments of his entire ministry. Here are these people looking to him as the source of the miracle. And all of a sudden, this fisherman from the Galilee was on the verge of star status. He was about to be the next Instagram sensation, right? But he's also on the verge of being shelved from ministry altogether. Because the Lord declares in Isaiah 42, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. He says, and my glory I will not give God will not share his glory with anyone else because there's no one else who's worthy of God's glory. And what happens is whenever God uses people in any way, there will always be those who will look to that person and they'll say, wow, you are so special. Wow, you, you're, you're so anointed. My goodness, you are so spiritual. Or I couldn't possibly have gotten through this time without your Yet this is the point where we need to watch out and we need to be careful because it's the fallen part of our human nature that always wants people to assume that we're deeper than we really are, right? Or that we're more talented than we really are, or that we're more spiritual than we really are because we want them to think that we're special, right? We want them to remember our name. And so whether we're serving as a musician or a Sunday school teacher or an administrator or a ministry organizer or a pastor or some kind of worship leader, we need to know that the very quickest way that we can be taken out of the ministry is simply to say, hey, I want my name to be exalted. And we can all look around and we probably can think of examples of men and women who we know at one time were greatly used by the Lord. And yet now, strangely, they seem to be sitting on the shelf, gathering dust. And most likely, it all stemmed from the fact that they wanted the glory for themselves. Or they just wanted even a portion of God's glory. And I think that this is no less true, not just in the ministry, but it's so true in our own lives, in our own sense of Christian growth and our development. Because it's just at the point where we start to assume that our success in serving the Lord, or that our growth in the Lord, or that our victory over some particular struggle in our lives, when we start to assume that those things are coming because of our own godliness, or when we start to assume that they're happening because of our own efforts, when we fall into that trap, what we so often find is that all of a sudden, all of that success and that growth and that victory is suddenly because the quickest way to stop the progress is to start to think that we had something to do 
So let me encourage you. If something good is happening in your life, or if something good is happening in your ministry, give the glory to God because it's Him doing it. Trust me, it's not you. Amen? So it's here at this very crucial moment, I think, in Peter's ministry. It could have been over before it even started. And what does Peter do? He points the people away from himself. Right off the bat, he says, hey, men of Israel, why are you marveling at this? You know your history. You know the way God parted the Red Sea and the way he rained down manna from heaven. You know the way that he used a slingshot to slay a giant. You know, our God is the God of the miraculous. So why are you surprised that God would heal this lame man? And what we see next is that as remarkable and as wonderful as this healing was, Peter knew that this is not what the crowd needed to hear about. What the crowd needed to hear about was the gospel of Jesus. What the crowd needed was a call to repent and to believe. And so watch how quickly Peter pivots. Instead of, you know, he uses this now as a platform to point the people to Jesus. He says, look, this wasn't us at all, but what you just witnessed was that, verse 13, was that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, I love the way Peter starts out. He speaks to them as one of them. He kind of starts by building this bridge between him and his listeners, and he's declaring to them that what they had just seen happen was not at all about him. It wasn't at all about John. It wasn't even really about this beggar. It was all about Jesus. And the fact that Jesus has healed countless people on earth during his earthly ministry, and now... He had healed this man, but he had done it from heaven through the Spirit by his servants. And we're going to see as we go through the rest of what Peter said that the real greatness of Peter's sermon is that it was all about Jesus. It's not about Peter. It's not about anything that he did, but it's all about Jesus. Because Jesus, as Peter points out here, is the true servant of the Lord. Now that servant of the Lord, when Peter called him a servant of the Lord, that's a concept which would have immediately grabbed the attention of every one of these Jewish religious people. Because that concept of servant of the Lord was very well known throughout all of Israel because of powerful prophetic passages like Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. All of them talk about the one who would come from the Lord to do the will of the Lord amongst the people of the Lord. And that servant, Peter says here, was none other than Jesus. And he says, in fact, it's the same Jesus that you all already know all about. Because look the way that Peter continues in the second half of verse 13. He says, it's that very Jesus whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. Wow. Remember that beautiful bridge we said Peter built between him and his hearers, right? The one about how they, were, they had this common ancestry of faith. Well, that beautiful bridge, he just bulldozed it right here, didn't he? Because look at how Boldly, he sets the guilt for the death of Jesus right squarely where it belongs, at the feet of these Jewish listeners. So after pointing them away from himself, and after pointing them to Jesus, he now points the people right to their own sin. Notice that word that keeps coming up as he reminds them of the way they treated Jesus. He says, you delivered up and denied. You denied the Holy One and the just. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the Prince of Life. They had done all of this to Jesus. So Peter now has sort of turned the temple courts into a courtroom, and these people were guilty as charged. 
And notice, in order to help convince them of how serious their crimes were, in this one sentence, do you see the way that Peter uses five different names and titles for our Lord? He calls him God's servant, Jesus, the Holy One, the Just One, and the Prince of Life. Because this was no ordinary man that they had just turned over to Pilate to be brutally crucified. Peter very powerfully, again, empowered by the Spirit, lays the whole thing out before them. Now, I think just that is a miracle in and of itself. In fact, one author comments that the miracle of the speech of Peter is a far more wonderful one than the miracle wrought in the healing of the man who lay at the beautiful gate. And isn't it so true that it is not at all an easy thing to confront people with their sin? And that is precisely why the church, in many circles, has just stopped doing it. We just don't want to call people out anymore on the things that they're doing wrong. And yet in God's economy, it remains a critical and an essential part of the salvation of any soul. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says that godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world, he says, produces death. So there has to be conviction of a sinner before there can be that conversion. Think of it this way, unless a, a patient is convinced that they're sick, they're not going to accept the diagnosis, and they're certainly not going to take the treatment. Now, we don't need to be some sort of squad of self-appointed sin inspectors, right, who are dredging up every detail and every misstep in a person's life. But I think we do need to love people enough to let them know that they have sinned against God and that they are out of fellowship with him and that they are in need of his forgiveness. And so Peter says, you killed the Prince of Life. You murdered the one who came to give life to you, the one who came to be life for you, and the one who came to provide healing in you. And then he says in verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of so here in this, this temple courtroom, Peter stated the charges, he's laid out this evidence for everybody to see, and now here he comes to a kind of a conclusion that it was through faith in the name of Jesus that this man has been made well. So Peter points the people right to faith in Jesus, which was the real reason for the miracle. You know, this, this miraculous <coughs> healing that had happened to this man had only happened to this man because of the miraculous faith in the power of the ability of Jesus to miraculously heal this man. Did you catch that? And notice that Peter wouldn't even take credit for the faith that was exercised in the healing. Notice he says that it was the faith which comes through him that has given this man perfect soundness. Not only did the healing itself come from Jesus, but even the faith to believe for it came from him. And in this case, it wasn't even So, I'm calling this message, Peter points the people. I could have called it the Apostle Peter points the people, and yet I thought that might be a little bit hard. But I think as we, as we go through this, we're going to see that this passage is so rich, I think, in application, not just to us as we're out there trying to be a blessing and trying to minister to others, but I really think even more so personally, I think that this passage really reveals to us the heart of God. It reminds us of that glorious gospel in which we live, and it refocuses our sights, if you will, right on Jesus where they need to be. So let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless and ask him to meet us here this morning. So Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, just for the privilege of being here, Lord. We thank you that you've 
provided this place where we can gather, Lord, and set aside this time for us to meet. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would meet here with us. Lord, we're, we come here expecting uh, an encounter with you, Lord. We expect you to work in a way, Lord, that's, um, that's nothing less than supernatural. So, Lord, we pray you do that through your word this morning. We pray that the teaching ministry of your spirit is manifest among us here today. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, what a remarkable text it was last time. We watched Peter and John. Remember, they were just on their way to a time of prayer there at the temple. And we saw that the Holy Spirit, he singled out that one lame man. And he did a mighty work in his life. And we saw how he used the gift of knowledge and the gift of faith as the Spirit enabled Peter and manifest those gifts of healings through him. And we saw that it brought wholeness to the man's legs and it brought salvation to his soul. And we watched him standing and he was leaping and it said he was praising God. Because remember we said that Jesus had done so much more for that man than he could have ever imagined or hoped for. And then we saw that the people that were gathered there in the temple for this time of prayer saw this man, and they recognized him as that beggar who was always there by the beautiful gate. In verse 10 it said that they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So there are thousands of people there in the temple courts, marveling at this man and this miracle that they had just witnessed. And then we pick up our story in verse 11. We read that here the people are starting kind of to point at Peter. It says in verse 11 that as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together toward them in the porch which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And I just think this is such a picture that Luke paints for us here. These multitudes are kind of rushing towards Peter and John and this poor lame man. It says that the guy's holding on tightly. Now, I don't think he was holding on because he needed their help to stand up. I think this guy's holding on because he's just afraid. As thousands of people are coming toward him. Suddenly, he is the subject of their attention, right? They're, they're trying to find out what happened to him. He's standing there with the apostles in a place Luke says called Solomon's Porch. Now Solomon's Porch was a specific part on the east side of the temple complex. It was sort of like a long corridor which then opened up to a huge courtyard area. You maybe remember it's where John tells us that Jesus had ministered. It's where we're going to see in Acts chapter 5 that the early church actually gathered for worship. And so seeing all this, I think, and looking through the eyes of faith and not through eyes of fear, Peter doesn't see this multitude pressing in. You know, you know, he sees another opportunity. He sees this curious crowd, a chance to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. But first, he needs to get their focus where it belongs. And so it says in verse 12 that when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. He said, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Now you remember in the first sermon that Peter preached on Pentecost, remember he had to correct that accusation that all of those believers were drunk. Here, in the second sermon, he starts off having to correct the assumption that somehow he and John had healed this man by their own power. And this is a super important point. Because it was at this point that I believe that Peter faced one of the most dangerous moments of his entire ministry. Here are these people looking to him as the source of the miracle. And all of a sudden, this fisherman from the Galilee was on the verge of star status. He was about to be the next Instagram sensation, right? But he's also on the verge of being shelved from ministry altogether. Because the Lord declares in Isaiah 42, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, he says, and my glory I will not give to another. So God will not share his glory with anyone else because 
because there's no one else who's worthy of God's glory. And what happens is whenever God uses people in any way, there will always be those who will look to that person and they'll say, wow, you are so special. Wow, you, you're, you're so anointed. My goodness, you are so spiritual. Or I couldn't possibly have gotten through this time without your you know, godliness. And yet this is the point where we need to watch out and we need to be careful because it's the fallen part of our human nature that always wants people to assume that we're deeper than we really are, right? Or that we're more talented than we really are, or that we're more spiritual than we really are, because we want them to think that we're special, right? We want them to remember our name. And so whether we're serving as a musician or a Sunday school teacher or an administrator or a ministry organizer or a pastor or some kind of worship leader, we need to know that the very quickest way that we can be taken out of the ministry is simply to say, hey, I want my name to be exalted. And we can all look around and we probably can think of examples of men and women who we know at one time were greatly used by the Lord. And yet now, strangely, they seem to be sitting on the shelf gathering dust. And most likely, it all stemmed from the fact that they wanted the glory for themselves. Or they just wanted even a portion of God's glory. And I think that this is no less true, not just in the ministry, but it's so true in our own lives, in our own sense of Christian growth and our development, because it's just at the point where we start to assume that our success in serving the Lord, or that our growth in the Lord, or that our victory over some particular struggle in our lives when we start to assume that those things are coming because of our own godliness, or when we start to assume that they're happening because of our own efforts, when we fall into that trap, what we so often find is that all of a sudden, all of that success and that growth and that victory is suddenly gone. Because the quickest way to stop the progress is to start to think that we had something to do with it. So let me encourage you, if something good is happening in your life, or if something good is happening in your ministry, give the glory to God because it's Him doing it. Trust me, it's not you. Amen? So it's here at this very crucial moment, I think, in Peter's ministry. It could have been over before it even started. And what does Peter do? He points the people away from himself. Right off the bat, it says, hey, men of Israel, why are you marveling at this? You know, you know your history. You know the way God parted the Red Sea and the way he rained down manna from heaven. You know the way that he used a slingshot to slay a giant. You know, our God is the God of the miraculous. So why are you surprised that God would heal this lame man? And what we see next is that as remarkable and as wonderful as this healing was, Peter knew that this is not what the crowd needed to hear about. What the crowd needed to hear about was the gospel of Jesus. What the crowd needed was a call to repent and to believe. And so watch how quickly Peter pivots. Instead of, you know, he uses this now as a platform to point the people to Jesus. He says, look, this wasn't us at all, but what you just witnessed was that verse 13 was that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, I love the way Peter starts out. He speaks to them as one of them. He kind of starts by building this bridge between him and his listeners, and he's declaring to them that what they had just seen happen was not at all about him. It wasn't at all about John. It wasn't even really about this beggar. It was all about Jesus. And the fact that Jesus has healed countless people on earth during his earthly ministry, and now he had healed this man, but he had done it from heaven through the Spirit by his servants. And we're going to see as we go through the rest of what Peter said that the real greatness of Peter's sermon is that it was all about Jesus. It's not about Peter. It's not about 
anything that he did, but it's all about Jesus. Because Jesus, as Peter points out here, is the true servant of the Lord. Now that servant of the Lord, when Peter called him a servant of the Lord, that's a concept which would have immediately grabbed the attention of every one of these Jewish religious people. Because that concept of servant of the Lord was very well known throughout all of Israel because of powerful prophetic passages like Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. All of them talk about the one who would come from the Lord to do the will of the Lord amongst the people of the Lord. And that servant, Peter says here, was none other than Jesus. And he says, in fact, it's the same Jesus that you all already know all about. Because look the way that Peter continues in the second half of verse 13. He says, it's that very Jesus whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Wow. Remember that beautiful bridge we said Peter built between him and his hearers, right? The one about how they, were, they had this common ancestry of faith? Well, that beautiful bridge, he just bulldozed it right here, didn't he? Because look at how boldly he sets the guilt for the death of Jesus right squarely where it belongs, at the feet of these Jewish listeners. So after pointing them away from himself, and after pointing them to Jesus, he now points the people right to their own sin. Notice that word that keeps coming up as he reminds them of the way they treated Jesus. He says, you delivered up and denied. You denied the Holy One and the just. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the prince life. They had done all of this to Jesus. So Peter now has sort of turned the temple courts into a courtroom, and these people were guilty as charged. And notice, in order to help convince them of how serious their crimes were, in this one sentence, do you see the way that Peter uses five different names and titles for our Lord? He calls him God's servant, Jesus, the Holy One, the Just One, and the Prince of Life. Because this was no ordinary man that they had just turned over to Pilate to be brutally crucified. Peter very powerfully, again, empowered by the Spirit, lays the whole thing out before them. Now I think just that is a miracle in and of itself. In fact, one author comments that the miracle of the speech of Peter is a far more wonderful one than the miracle wrought in the healing of the man who lay at the beautiful gate. And isn't it so true that it is not at all an easy thing to confront people with their sin? And that is precisely why the church, in many circles, has just stopped doing it. We just don't want to call people out anymore on the things that they're doing wrong. And yet in God's economy, it remains a critical and an essential part of the salvation of any soul. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says that godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world, he says, produces death. So there has to be conviction of a sinner before there can be that conversion. Think of it this way, unless a, a patient is convinced that they're sick, they're not going to accept the diagnosis and they're certainly not going to take the treatment. Now, we don't need to be some sort of squad of self-appointed sin inspectors, right, who are dredging up every detail and every misstep in a person's life. But I think we do need to love people enough to let them know that they have sinned against God. 
and that they are out of fellowship with him and that they are in need of his forgiveness. And so Peter says, you killed the prince of life. You murdered the one who came to give life to you, the one who came to be life for you, and the one who came to provide healing in you. And then he says in verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you. So here in this, this temple courtroom, Peter stated the charges. He's laid out this evidence for everybody to see. And now here he comes to a kind of a conclusion that it was through faith in the name of Jesus that this man has been made well. So Peter points the people right to faith in Jesus, which was the real reason for the miracle. You know, this, this miraculous healing that had happened to this man had only happened to this man because of the miraculous faith in the power of the ability of Jesus to miraculously heal this man. Did you catch that? And notice that Peter wouldn't even take credit for the faith that was exercised in the healing. Notice he says that it was the faith which comes through him that has given this man perfect soundness. Not only did the healing itself come from Jesus, but even the faith to believe for it came from him. And in this case, it wasn't even the lame man's faith, was it? Remember, the lame man was just there kind of begging for bucks, but it was this gift of faith that was given by God to Peter in the power in the name of Jesus. That's what healed the man. That concept of the name of Jesus, you know, in the Hebrew culture, and therefore in the scriptures, someone's name had a real sense of significance. It wasn't simply how you would, you know, call them to dinner, right? It was intended to reflect their character, that the name was supposed to tell a story about that person. And their whole culture was a culture in which names were filled with a sense of hope and of expectation. And that's why the names that are given to Jesus throughout the scriptures are so incredibly significant because they tell us his story. They give us a picture of what he was like. And that's precisely why that God deliberately placed more than 100 names in the Bible for Jesus. And each one of those tell us something about him. And it's together that they allow us to know him more fully and to help us to understand that he is everything that we could possibly need. Now here quickly are just some of those hundred names. He's the Almighty One, the Alpha and Omega, the Advocate, Author and Perfecter of our faith, Authority, the Bread of Life, the Beloved Son of God, the Bridegroom, the Chief Cornerstone, the Deliverer, Faithful and True, Good Shepherd, Great High Priest, Head of the Church, Holy Servant, the I Am, Emmanuel, Indescribable Gift, Judge, King of Kings, Lamb of God, Light of the World, Lion of the Tribe of Judah, Lord of All, Mediator, Messiah, Mighty One, One Who Sets Free, Our Hope, Peace, Prophet, Redeemer, Risen Lord, Rock, Sacrifice for Our Sins, Savior, Son of Man, Son of the Most High, Supreme Creator over all, the Resurrection and the Life, the Door, the Way, the Word, the True Vine, Truth, the Victorious One, and Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And the truth is that when we're faced with a difficult situation that requires some sort of supernatural intervention, we too can trust in the name of Jesus. Because all of the power of heaven, right, the saving and the healing and the protecting and the justifying and the redeeming power of God, it all resides in the person of Christ. And Jesus is his name. You know, think about this. We are all very willing to trust in his name for our eternal salvation. 
we trust that his sacrifice was sufficient to provide us with forgiveness and to reconcile us to the Father. And yet, why then are we sometimes so slow to trust in that same name with whatever it is that we're facing at the moment? So let me encourage all of us, whatever you are personally facing this morning, if it wasn't covered in that last list of 50 names, maybe it'll be covered in this next list of 50 names. <laughs> just kidding. Can we just agree, though, that the true power is in Jesus? He's everything that we need. He's sufficient for every situation. And these Jews, Peter says, had denied him, they had delivered him up, and they had killed him. But as we've always said, you know, Calvary may have been man's last word, but the empty tomb was God's last word. And we know that he first, he glorified his son by raising him from the dead and taking him back to heaven. Now he was glorified further as Jesus sits there enthroned in heaven and sent his spirit and was working through his spirit and his church to heal this man. So at this point, the testimony is complete, the evidence is clear, the healed beggar was proof that Jesus was alive. And if there were ever a people who were guilty, it was these self-righteous religious people that Peter was addressing there in the temple. They were guilty of killing their own Messiah. And yet watch what he does in verse 17. He says, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. So all of a sudden, there's this beautiful, sort of a distinct change in Peter's tone. He had powerfully pointed them to their own sin, but Peter didn't want to leave the people without any hope. In fact, it's almost as though he offers them a pardon, right? He kind of acknowledges that they had acted in ignorance and then further says that God actually used their error to fulfill his plan. And I have to say, I love Peter's approach here because instead of simply slamming these people in the face with their sin. Notice the way he leaves the door open for his audience to repent. And sometimes I'm afraid as Christians, we can press our point so hard that we can often win the argument, but we're going to lose the soul. Because remember what Paul wrote to the Romans. He says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So, you know, Peter not only points the people to their own sin, but more importantly, Peter points the people right to God's grace. And this provides them with hope. Understand that this ignorance in the mind of the Jews, it didn't absolve them of their guilt but it absolutely changed the character of their crime. Because throughout the Old Testament law, there was a big difference between deliberate sins and sins that were committed out of ignorance. So the person that sinned intentionally was viewed as a rebel against God, and he was guilty of great sin. And, and the, you know, the book of Numbers says he was to be cut off from his people. He could be excommunicated or even killed. So the, the defiant kind of high-handed sinner was always condemned. But for the person who sinned unwittingly or the person who sinned without a real deliberate intent, they were always given the opportunity to repent and to seek the forgiveness of God. And so in this Jewish economy, they, they would understand in Peter's audience, it doesn't, you know, their ignorance doesn't remove their guilt. It absolutely did mitigate the circumstances. And I believe this is in part precisely why Jesus prayed from the cross. What did he pray? He said, Father, forgive them. For what? For they know not what they do. 
This is why the Apostle Paul would later write that had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So here Peter is reaching out to his brethren to assure them that their sin, no matter how great, their sin was still subject to the forgiving grace of God. And can I tell you this morning that yours is too? Yours is too, no matter how heinous, no matter how serious, no matter how many times you, through your sin, have crucified the Lord and put him back on the cross, God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace covers you because God loves you. And God can redeem even your worst failures because notice Peter assures them despite all of the evil they did to Jesus, that didn't at all change. It didn't derail God's plan. God can take the most horrible, he can take the most evil things done, and he can still use it for good. And that's why Joseph could say to his brothers at the end of their story, he said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And we need to remember personally that this very same principle that was at work here in the life of Joseph, the very same principle that was at work even in the crucifixion of Jesus, that principle is also at work in our lives. It wasn't just a Christian platitude. It wasn't a bumper sticker or a bookmark when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans that we know all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And we do know it, don't we? And it's the cross that proves it. We can never forget that God can and God will and God often has. He used the most painful things that happened to us. He used the most evil things that have been done to us and he will work them together for good. So that trial that you are in the midst of right now or that sense of sorrow that you can't get out from under, understand that God sees that. And God knows about it. And God is using all of these things to bring about things that we can't even now conceive of. And the next time we're tempted to doubt these things, he directs us right back to the cross. And that reminder that the death of Jesus on the cross wasn't accidental. It wasn't a massive mistake. It was all part of God's prophetic so here, for these people, without excusing their sin, Peter shows them that God even overruled it and used it to fulfill his purposes. All of the prophets of the Old Testament had predicted that the, the Messiah would suffer. The Jewish people were the ones that inflicted that suffering upon him. And yet now, in his grace, he was still offering them to him. Pardon me, offering himself to them as their savior. They could still receive forgiveness for their sins. So now watch what Peter does. Having pointed them away from himself to Jesus, he's pointed out their great sin. He's pointed out God's great grace. He now calls them in verse 19. He says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So there's hope, there's forgiveness, by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, but it required something of them. And just as we saw in his first sermon, Peter points the people to repentance. He told them to turn around in their thinking, turn around in their actions. We talked about the fact when we looked at Peter's Pentecost sermon, repentance doesn't describe just being sorry, but it describes instead that act of turning around, and specifically the act of turning around in their thoughts and their attitudes and their beliefs about Jesus Christ. And here again, just as he had done in the other sermon, he uses that whole concept of repentance as a beacon of hope, telling them that they had indeed done wrong, but they could still turn it around. They could still become right with God. 
He'd spoken so boldly about their sin, but he didn't just do it to make them feel bad. That wasn't ever the goal. The goal was to point them to repentance and to point them to conversion. And if anybody knew the necessity of personal conversion, it was Peter. That work of God bringing new life to each one of us. Because the Christian life is not a matter of just sort of turning over a new leaf. Right? It's the reality of being a new creation in Jesus Christ. And interestingly, the word that Luke records here, that Peter uses when he talks about being converted, is actually a word that's better translated, turn to God. Or more accurately, Peter tells them to flee to God. And I believe that Peter used this word precisely, that the Holy Spirit gave him this word specifically because it would resonate with these Jewish hearers. It would have spoken to them about the whole imagery of those cities of refuge in the Old Testament. Because the situation that Israel and that these people were in, they were like that manslayer. Right, was provided for in the law recorded in Numbers 35. That person who had killed his neighbor perhaps by accident without prior malicious intent and had to flee to a city of refuge. And that as long as they remained in that city, they were safe. And the avengers that would naturally come from the family of the victim couldn't find them and kill them. And so by using this language, what Peter's doing is he's inviting these ignorant murderers of Jesus Christ to flee by faith to Jesus Christ and find their refuge and their safety in him. The author to the Hebrews says that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that was set before us. And we have this consolation because Peter promises next year that our sins may be blotted out. So the one who repents, the one who's converted, is forgiven of our sins, and the record of them is totally erased. Not just covered over, but completely removed. And that was the idea here. The idea is the idea of wiping ink right off of a document. And it's interesting because apparently the ink that they used back then didn't have a, a real acidic content to it and it couldn't bite into, it didn't absorb into the paper. So it was very easy to take a damp cloth and wipe everything completely off the page. And so Peter said that God would wipe away our record of sin just like that. And that's precisely what he has done it's precisely what he will do for each and every one of us in this room this morning. Isaiah 43 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. These are precious promises personally. And yet there was also a special significance nationally to what Peter's saying here to the Jews, because next he announces what would happen to them as a nation if they would repent corporately and finally turn to Jesus Christ. He says their sins would be forgiven, look at the rest of verse 19, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time, the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, that phrase, times of refreshing, has a very specific prophetic meaning, spoken of specifically in Deuteronomy 20 and Joel chapter 2 and Zechariah chapter 12. They speak of that future time when Jesus returns at his second coming, right, restores all things, that time when Israel will receive her Messiah and Jesus will set up his earthly kingdom. And rest assured, every Jew that day who heard this would have known what Peter was talking about here. And so understand that what Peter was actually calling for was nothing less than complete and total national. 
national repentance from the Jews at that moment. Because the nation, through its leaders, had denied and condemned the Messiah. And the implication here, what Peter's saying, is that if the nation had repented and believed that God would have sent Jesus then to establish the promised kingdom. Now, we know now that the nation did not repent. And certainly God knew then that that would happen. And so we're going to see that this message eventually of salvation moves from the Jews to the Samaritans and then eventually to the Gentiles. And yet God in his grace was extending to his people collectively yet another opportunity to experience his forgiveness and his refreshing. And the sad reality is that because national repentance has to come before that national restoration and blessing, the Jewish people as a whole are left still waiting even today to experience this time. And though the Jews and the world globally are left waiting for these times of, of refreshing, we as believers can be refreshed presently whenever we repent of how we think and we turn toward Him. Because in a lesser though, in still a glorious sense, God still sends times of refreshing to His people and He sends them through that ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's in those times when we feel dry and we feel weary and we feel weak and we just feel in need of refreshing spiritually. It's the Spirit coming freshly upon us and refilling us. That's what refreshes us. And that's what revives us. There, there's nothing that's much more refreshing than water when we're thirsty. And that's why Jesus used this same imagery. Remember in John chapter 7, standing right there at that same spot, he cries out that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. And yet there's a truth that we who've already received the Spirit, and yet maybe if we're presently not pursuing Him quite as passionately in the way that we once did, what happens is He gets quenched, we feel dry, and those wonderful promises of these times of refreshing are reduced to nothing more than a nice little historical event that we read about in Acts chapter. And if you're in that place this morning, notice that Peter points us also to the cure. He says that the path to refreshing is what? It's repentance. So the path to refreshing is coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I was wrong. I was wrong about this situation. I was wrong about the way I was thinking about that person. I was wrong in the way I've been holding on to this particular sin in my life. Lord, you were right. And sometimes I think we can sit around and wonder why we don't feel filled or why we don't feel refreshed. But it's so often because we don't need to be filled as much as what we need is to be emptied. We need to be emptied of all of that carnality and that sin and that rebellion and that unbelief. And that only comes when we can say, you know what, Lord, no more excuses. No more justifying, no more whitewashing, Lord, I repent. And then what happens is we find that those times of refreshing, or those latter rains, or that sense of overflow, that return of that dynamic work of the Holy Spirit, we start to now experience these times in this overwhelming beauty and, and reality. And that's what Peter wanted for so now he's pointed the people away from himself to Jesus, to their own sin. He's pointed them to faith. He's pointed them to God's grace. He's pointed them to repentance. But Peter knew, ultimately, that saving faith didn't simply come from seeing or hearing about miracles. 
It didn't simply come from even his powerful, persuasive preaching, but instead, like Paul said to the Romans, that faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So what Peter does in this last section is he points the people right to God's word. He says in verse 22, he says, if you're not gonna believe me, he says in verse 22, Moses, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who will follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. So no doubt, inspired by the Spirit of God, Peter directs them right to the Word of God, and he quotes directly from Genesis. He quotes directly from Deuteronomy. He also refers collectively to every one of the prophets who came afterward with this consistent message of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and of his rejection during these days by these people. Right? These days refers to those days when God's prophet Jesus would come to God's people, the Jews, offer salvation to them, only to be rejected, even though all of their scriptures pointed to his coming. The Jews had sinned against an enormous flood of light, and yet Peter here insists that all of it had happened, all of it had, all of it had been foretold, and he says, if you will simply look in your own scriptures, you're going to see that it's all there. And I think that Peter's point is to prove to them that their own scriptures are speaking about them. And I think that there is, there is nothing that's much more powerful than those times where by the grace of God, we see ourselves on the pages of the scriptures. We're reading in our daily devotions and we see our specific situation in a passage or in a verse. And it's like those words just jump off the page to us. And that's God revealing his heart and his love and his concern to us through the ministry of the Spirit. Understand, the very best place for us to go, the absolute best place to encourage others to go, either when we're struggling with a specific situation or when they're seeking to, to know and to, to understand God, the best place to go is to go right back to the Bible. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8 in Matthew 4 when he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Because it's as God speaks through the scriptures, that's where he makes clear who he is. He makes clear who we really are. He makes clear how we can be reconciled to him through his son Jesus. That's where he makes clear that he is our refuge and that he's our strength and that he is a very present help in trouble. And so understand, even our best encouragement on our best day is going to fall short of the direct encouragement that could come to a person directly from God's Word. Because the Spirit will use that to fill our hearts and to enlighten and to renew our minds. So as we finish up, watch the way that Peter makes one final appeal. He's going to remind them of the promises and the privileges that were given to them. He says, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your so Peter reminds them of this, these national privileges that they had as God's chosen and as his covenant people. But notice how clear Peter is. These national blessings didn't at all overshadow the personal responsibility of each and every one of them who were hearing his message. Because God raised up Jesus Christ and sent him 
to every one of them who would turn away from their iniquities. And I love the way that Peter here, again, he's addressing this huge crowd, but he still makes the application personal. We know that the Holy Spirit was working personally in the hearts of 5,000 people who were open and who were ready to repent and to receive and to have their sins blotted out and to enjoy that refreshing of their souls. And it happened all because their curiosity was piqued right, by the healing and the, and the leaping around of that lame beggar. And then the message of the gospel pierced their hearts. And what I think is really interesting, imagine th these people looking there at that lame man. We talked about the fact last week that that lame man had received so much more from the Lord than he ever had expected. Remember, he had just asked for alms and ends up being saved instead. And here are these faithful Jews, right, thousands of them, who are headed to the temple for an everyday obligatory afternoon prayer meeting. They are simply fulfilling their daily religious duty, but God in his grace had something so much more for them that day, didn't he? They looked at that lame man. They were looking, I think, at themselves. And we never know when it is that our God might just want to work miraculously. And so I believe we just want to be as ready as we can to point people like Peter did, to point people in the right direction. Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for uh, just the great encouragement. Lord, the great instruction that you give to us through it, Lord. We do, we want to be used, Father, but first we want you to do, um, just to continue that deep work in each of our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would help to minister these principles uh, to us personally first, Lord, before we, uh, before we are even equipped to take them out and to minister to, to so many who are in need. So, Father, we pray that you would build us up, equip us, Lord, encourage us, and send us out, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name.